1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Martha Moffat Peacock, professor of art history at Brigham Young University, about to talk t- about her new book, Heroines, Harpies, and Housewives, Imaging Women of Consequence in the Dutch Golden Age, out 2020 with Brill. Hello, Martha, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, it's uh, wonderful. It's a joy. Uh, so how
2: are you? Are you in Provo? Uh, next door in Orem, but yes, BYU, Brigham Young University is in Provo, Utah. Oh, it's so beautiful. It is. It's a gorgeous place and nice weather and, uh, we're getting all vaccinated up. So that's all a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think you'll be able to come over this summer to Europe for work? Uh, That's what I was hoping. I'm starting a new book project and, uh, so just waiting for the Netherlands to open up so I can get in
1: <laughs> soon, very soon. Um, and maybe we'll actually, by the time you get here, maybe we'll have spring for you because we, we don't have it yet, but we're promised that it'll happen at some point. Um, <laughs> so yeah, soon we hope we'll open for vaccinated Americans. All right, okay, so I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, and it's so nice. It's you know, these brill books, there's something just wonderful about holding a brill book in your hand, it's just solid. <laughs> And, you know, it's quality scholarship and it's great printing and it's they're just wonderful. So it was really nice. All right. So our first task is to establish how this fits into your academic trajectory. Right. So I've taken a look at your C- CV and I see that from very early on, you have been about representation and gender in the Dutch Golden Age. Um, so how did you get interested in the Low Countries? Well, that's an interesting
2: uh, question. I have been interested really in the Low Countries since I started as an undergraduate. I was first attracted to strange and weird artists like Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, but when I started in graduate school, I really became attracted to the art of the 17th century Dutch Republic. And I think in particular because it was all about women. Uh, For the first time in art history, you really begin to see uh, a keen interest in contemporary women and representing contemporary women, not historical women, so not religious subjects and not uh, mythological subjects, but real women, women (laughs) who actually existed at the time. And it was entirely new in art history. So it it, it really attracted me to think, what is going on in this culture where women uh, play such an important role that their lives are represented again and again in the art of the period.
1: Very cool. All right. So how did you become interested? What what got you from uh, your interest in women and representation in the Dutch Golden Age into this book?
2: this book actually is years and years of research. Uh, actually this whole section on harpies I'd started to work on for my dissertation. Mm -hmm. So it goes clear back uh, to the late eighties. And, uh, I just kept working on representations of women in various kinds of, uh, settings. And I, uh, just continued to do little bits of research on various aspects of women's lives in the Dutch Republic. And the book just got bigger and bigger. (laughs) I was originally just going to write it on harpies. And then I began to see there were these interesting connections between The harpies that I'd first studied, or shrewish women, essentially represented in art, Uh, women who beat up their husbands and stole their husbands' trousers and who forced their husbands to do female chores and so on. Interesting connections to particularly heroines. And uh, you'll notice in the book, I have a couple of references, contemporary references to men who uh, are writing sort of pseudo-histories who talk about the famous heroines of the Dutch Revolt and say things like, yeah, this leads to women becoming overbearing and too powerful in our culture and so on. And they begin to sort of resent that. Uh, Particularly some men are saying, yeah, I wouldn't want to marry one of these women. I wouldn't want a too powerful wife, those kinds of things. But linking it up then to these heroines. So then I became really interested in the heroines, uh, particularly Kenal Simons Hasselar, uh, who really became the most famous hero, slash heroine of the revolt uh, was greatly celebrated and even still today that word is used that name is used to represent a kind of mannish woman a woman who's uh who's powerful and overbearing and so on so I became really interested in that connection between the heroines and these resented harpy shrewish kind of women Um, and then I I In the 90s, in the late 90s, there was a lot of scholarship coming out about domestic images, about images of women in the household, and it took this... Tone of patriarchy of explaining these and interpreting these through looking at moralists like the famous Jacob Cats, who was uh, the most popular moralist really uh, of the Dutch Golden Age, um, and and so they began to see these then as these images of women who were uh, told by men the roles that they should perform. And therefore, these images were a way of inculcating in women an attitude of modesty and deference and so on. And I just kept thinking, okay, I've got these great heroines here who are really powerful women in the Dutch Republic. Then I've got these harpies who are also these really powerful, overbearing women. And then somehow this this overwhelming sense of patriarchy in housewife images just didn't even fit with what I knew about Dutch women. So I wanted to come up with an understanding of these images, not from a contemporary feminist point of view, but from how women in the 17th century would have viewed these. And I found more and more evidence that really these images are a celebration of women and of their roles in society and how significant that role particularly of motherhood was that they ruled the roost and that the family really was the keystone of Dutch life, that, that the family and the emphasis on family and raising good little burgers and burgeresses was so important to, uh, to Dutch culture. And, and then it made me sort of see domesticity and images of women in the home in a totally different light as really a celebration of women's contributions to culture.
1: Hmm. All right. Um so you open the book uh with this quote from Dorovico Jo Ju uh from 19 19- from 1567 and I'm going to read it okay the women govern all both within the doors and without and make all bargains which joined with the natural desire that women have to bear rule make them too too imperious and troublesome um I love that so can you tell me why you chose this as your opening <laughs> Well, I wanted it to
2: be the sort of um, starting point, really, for my examination of what's called the long 17th century. In other words, for the Dutch, their golden age for many scholars really begins with the revolt. Mm -hmm. And I wanted uh, us to have a sense then of from the outset, women were already participating in storming churches and destroying our icons in the Catholic churches and so on. So I wanted us to have a sort of starting point for realizing that from the outset of the Republic, women were already joining in in ferocious fashion and they were already becoming very sort of public in their activities in sort of liberating the Dutch from their Spanish a Catholic king. So it, uh, I thought it was a nice starting point to say, all right, uh, there's going to be a change. The shift, the sh- there is mm-hmm. a shifting terrain here, and we're already engaging women in very public, very dynamic, very powerful kinds of ways. So he already watched this. He'd been experiencing this. He'd, he'd seen those iconoclastic riots, and he, uh, and he understood how significant women were in, uh, in, that, uh, in that historic moment.
1: Yeah, and we'll talk about uh, that and then this kind of backlash. We'll get to that in a second. Um, So one of the things I appreciate is just how much, like, opening this book, I love that by the end of page three, I know exactly what I'm going to be reading. Not enough scholars do this. um, And I find it so frustrating. You know, I'm a fan of the murder mystery, and I don't (laughs) need suspense in my nonfiction. (laughs) Tell me what you're going to tell me and how. And I love that that uh, you are just right in there. You're like, I'm going to talk about this and this and this and this is what I'm going to tell you. And then you do it. It's fabulous. <laughs> but the other thing that I really love is that right away, page three, there are some great images, right? By page five, I'm looking at the battle for the trousers. Um which is a really great engraving. I sent to a couple of my girlfriends like a, a copy of the engraving, and they were just like, "Yes, I feel that." Um, so, tell me about um, the uh, the. I, I actually have no idea. Hundreds of images that you use in this yeah, book? over over yeah. two
2: hundred and fifty images, yeah. and really, the images are the best part. Um, whenever somebody sees these images of the shrew we still just laugh at them today. They are so fun, they are so funny, they are so creative and ingenious. One of the things I really appreciate about the Dutch is they really came up with a whole new iconography in terms of art. They came up with whole new, I mean, not that they weren't at all related to the medieval past. Their, you know, The Battle of the Trousers was an old theme by the 17th century. But the ways in which they caricatured these and made them so funny and so humorous. so It's almost like watching a slapstick kind of drama right before your very eyes. And uh, so so when certain Dutch art historians talk about how, you know, the Dutch never laughed or never thought these things were funny, I'm just like, that's just not... reasonable in my mind, because we still laugh at them today. We still think they're really funny and humorous kinds of images. And I loved this idea of sorting out why they would have been funny to women and why they would have been funny to men. And so as you've noticed, the book is very interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. I, I touch on philosophy and psychology and sociology and economics and anthropology and so on. But but for scholars who 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 study humor, one of the things they've really begun begun to understand is that when men and women look at jokes, <laughs> they are oftentimes laughing at two different jokes. So for me, these harpy images then are wonderful representations where yes, you can see that they would be funny to men because in a superiority kind of approach to humor, there's the sense of men saying, that's not me. I'm not the, I'm not the uh, overrun husband here. Um, And for women is the sense of, yes, women are (laughs) triumphing. Yes, women, women are powerful in these images. So uh, I, I love that element of humor and thinking about how, again, particularly women would have, viewed these images that really is the point of this book is in looking at images of heroines and harpies and housewives how would it affected them how would they have interpreted these things what would they have seen uh when looking at these images
1: and you really do make this point that while um sometimes the images that you know these are um Propaganda, almost, or they're being used to to teach women or try to scold women for their behavior, and that's not how it reads at all to a different segment of the population. Exactly. Exactly.
2: Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And most Dutch art history, up to the point of uh, well, really, (laughs) um, well into the twenty first century, most of Dutch art history took this really firm, patriarchal, moralizing, male-centered position without ever really investigating what women would have seen.
1: Well, which makes so little sense when we're talking about a period where women are exercising power in all kinds of realms, right?
2: That's why it was so important to set up that historical context for women. I, I I think when you really begin to understand that in, in relation to other women, in comparison to other women throughout Europe in the 17th century, they had an amazing number of rights uh, and abilities that women elsewhere didn't have, everything from inheriting property to even married women being able to own their own businesses to represent themselves in the courts, uh, to be able to be regentesses, to be governesses of civic institutions. These were things unheard of elsewhere in in Europe. So, uh, you know, relatively speaking, they were pretty powerful women. Mm
1: -hmm. So the variety of images you use, we've got engravings, um, things that would have been like kind of broadsheets, some lots of portraits. What kind of other images am I missing? Genre scenes of women in the home, Um, uh, so
2: paintings as well. As you'll notice, uh, a a great deal of the third chapter is paintings, and that's Mm -hmm. because uh, domestic genre imagery really became one of the most uh, popular categories of painting in the 17th century. And uh, the second chapter is a lot of prints. Uh, These were obviously things that were meant to be sold not not just throughout the Netherlands, but throughout uh, Europe. A lot of them you'll notice have uh, inscriptions in other languages. Uh, So readily transportable, uh, cheap uh, Mm -hmm. uh, prints that were accessible to everybody. And then the heroines, there's a kind of interesting mix of both. Prince of Canau, for example, became so popular uh, that we just see a plethora of those uh, types of images, but also paintings, formal paintings that were of Kano, for example, that were in the town hall, those kinds of things. Uh, so it, it does interestingly fit into a kind of media uh, that uh, that best I think represents the kinds of audiences so, for the for the shrewish harpy, obviously those had a popular appeal uh, to a wide variety of uh, economic classes as well as
1: nationalities. Right, and that's another important piece of this uh, of the puzzle that um, you you cover is that there is um, the Netherlands are rich, 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 right? But then there, and it's also this huge international situation. So we've got people in the low countries, from all over the world. And some of them are the richest people that the world's ever seen. And some of them are barely managing, right? So there's a wide variety of images there.
2: Right. And and the thing I like about it being so accessible, so cheap, so uh, so available to a wide variety of economic classes is that it gives us, I think, a more complete understanding of Uh, of women generally having access to these discourses, not just the very elite of the society. So that there was a celebration, obviously, of a K-NOW or of Anna Maria von Sherman amongst all classes of women. In other words, that print, uh, those portrait prints of uh, these military and cultural heroines were available to... To even the lower classes, people who didn't have a lot of money and and at times didn't even have to be literate uh, really to right. be able to appreciate these.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of this is didactic. Like they're images that can be easily accessible for people who aren't literate, um, which is yeah, like uh, that really gives us a much rounder picture. Yeah. So your first chapter, Heroines, opens with the mention of a traditional woman, uh, the traditional women that are valorized in the medieval and early modern era, and era in various, like, catalogs of good women. right? And, and so some are warrior queens like Zenobia, the biblical Deborah, um, the medieval folk hero Joan of Arc. But these women were much rarer than the other sorts of women, maybe best demonstrated, dem, uh, like, best represented by Lucretia, who, you know, who loses her for her virtue and kills herself or Susanna who's celebrated for her her purity. And then you just say very simply Dutch heroines in contrast were distinctive in many ways. (laughs) Uh, So tell me how, what are these Dutch heroines like? What characterizes them?
2: Well, the great thing about them is they're not royalty. Uh, In other words, it's not a celebration of somebody who's in a powerful position. These were ordinary everyday burger women and uh, just fought with such great bravery that they became uh, noted uh, by foreigners as well as by uh, people of the Netherlands. And uh, so first of all, they are ordinary women uh, who don't have high status uh, in the society, and who don't have that sort of the religious significance of becoming saints or that kind of thing. Um, And so they are women that I think uh, the ordinary Dutch woman could relate to. Uh, They're like me. They're heroic like me. And the interesting thing also about these accounts that we have of the revolt in, in various cities, you know, the Spaniards went from city to city and they would besiege the city and sort of try to starve them into submission and so on. And we have a, a sense that women just really joined in this fight, um, not so much <laughs> shooting or killing soldiers, beheading them as in Kano's case, but but pouring tar and pitch over the walls, throwing stones at them. So whatever weapons they had, they used. But because the cities were besieged, it was essentially the whole city joined in, women, men, children. uh, But particularly women were noted for their valor in all these instances in protecting their city, their protecting their rights, their liberty, their independence, all of those kinds of things. So That was such a valued characteristic amongst people in the Dutch Golden Age that I think that women participating in this uh, really uh, put them at a level of of being sort of equal to the men in their quest for independence, uh, freedom, liberty, all of those kinds of things. So, the Dutch heroine then was, was an ordinary woman. If you see depictions of K now in the book, you'll see she's never the beautiful <laughs> seductress. Uh, she's never the really young, pure, virginal uh, kind of figure either she is just an ordinary woman and she is shown as rather manly um, and uh, and not lovely uh, kind of figure, which again is so different from typical representations of women in art history up to that point in time. Uh, And and so I do think that once again, women would really have related (laughs) to just this ordinary, uh, not attractive, not seductive uh, woman who is celebrated for her strength, her courage, uh, her manliness, rather than for uh, characteristics that women had been noted uh, for for such a long time.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
1: Yeah, no one's going to mistake her. I wonder if she's, you know, the the artist's mistress or something like no. that is that is not the image we see of her. And when you see her like holding up the head, you're like, yep, that, that tracks. <laughs> well done, you. Um, so there's this appreciation for these strong women, but then there's also a backlash, right? Which I think you really cover in Harpies as well. I mean, other places you talk about it, but Harpies is really about kind of this backlash against these women. Um, And some of the critiques of the Dutch women follow the traditional tropes we see elsewhere in Europe, but some are unique. So, like, tell me, how are Dutch women particularly difficult to manage?
2: Right. They develop this this reputation for being bossy, overbearing, shrewish, really from the outset uh, of the revolt and uh, I ba- I backtrack just a little bit in that section because I want to say that I don't think harpies just suddenly appear on the scene at the moment of the revolt. Peter Bruegel had treated the theme earlier on, and as I he's a 16th century uh, Netherlandish artist, so he so there had been these references to powerful women before that. And as I point out to scholars Herman Fly and uh, Walter Gibson both uh, point to characteristics in the 16th century that might have already led to this stereotype of the overbearing Netherlandish woman. First of all, as I point out, the Netherlands had been ruled really by women throughout the, most of the 16th century. All relatives of Charles V, the Emperor, uh, and uh, they had uh, had sort of control over the Netherlands. So perhaps a backlash to having a woman ruler uh, is part of this, but also that women were really participating, as Harriman Ply points out, in trade and, and things even in the 16th century. Women had more rights to participate in in trade and so on than elsewhere. So that there was already a powerful contingent of women in the Netherlands by the time the revolt starts that really enabled them, I think, to have the audacity to go in and storm the churches and and fight against the Spaniards and so on. In other words, it wasn't uh, such a leap from, from, from the women of the past to this new revolutionary heroine uh, who was brave enough to fight in this manner. So, uh, so, So there was a kind of history of that. Women had been educated in the Netherlands from a fairly early period. And it is interesting to note that so many women of the period notice that the lack of education is what keeps women in a subjugated Position. So even famous feminists of the period are saying women need to get educated because this will liberate them. So I think that's an aspect of Netherlandish culture that that really does go back um, to an earlier era. So that by the time we have the revolt, women are really positioned. Then I think to to play a more important role uh, than they would have been uh, than they would have been otherwise. So after that, it's like. The gates have blown open, and women are now uh, are now free to to do many more things than they had even in the past. Uh, that uh, with the onset now of the new Dutch Republic, which meant really changing culture in significant ways. It was a new religion. You know, it was Calvinism was the official uh, religion, even though only about half of the people in the the Dutch Republic were actually Calvinist. They were the official church. So it was a new religion, uh, a, new, uh, a new sort of cultural structure that was put into place now with the Dutch Republic, which allowed women then to, I think, play a significant role. It's sort of like the sense of, hey, we fought the battle. <laughs> we are now uh, liberated also, not just men. We are all free, and we're going to structure a new society. And that society did mean that women participated in the economics, they participated uh, in the governing of civic institutions, they participated in really very public ways, while also still celebrating those traditional roles now of women in a new society where the Catholic Church was not the sort of main instructor of how people should behave. It was the mother in the home that kept control. And as you can see um, in, in the book, uh, Jan van Beverwijk, who was a doctor, wrote this book on the excellence of the female sex. And he talks about roles of women in such an interesting way. In in this book, he celebrates the heroines. He has a whole section in the later edition that celebrates the heroines of the revolt. But he also talks about the cultural heroines of the era. He dedicates that second book to Anna Maria von Sherman, who really was this internationally famous scholar uh, of the era, spoke 12 languages and was just a a, a magnificent example of female scholarship internationally. Uh, But he celebrates all of those women, but he also talks about mothers. He also talks about housewives, how important they are for Dutch culture. He talks about them as rulers of their realm, like a uh, like a king would govern a, a country. He, he talks about how foundational they are, how important they are for the structuring of Dutch society. And then he goes on to say, they're only doing these roles because that's habit. That's not nature. It's not biology, which is so different from the rest of Europe. And then, he goes on to say, "My celebration of housewives is not a way to limit them to these roles. It is simply saying they are foundational, they are important, and if they were given opportunities in the public sphere, they could do so much more." I mean, it is such a, a, a feminist uh, argument that it's really quite amazing that it occurs in the 17th century. So, I, I find him really good evidence that there were attitudes that women were capable of all things, that women did have power, uh, in all of these various kinds of roles we've been talking about.
1: You know, um, and like, so let's pivot a little to talk about, uh, the, the, this is an interesting pivot. I realize as I'm saying it out loud, because what I want to talk about now is, is, you know, uh, domestic violence, as we would call it, right? We see a lot of spousal abuse, but in a way it's portrayed often in a very humorous way. Um, and, and 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 I see this place where uh, women like are humorously doing a lot of the the violence. What tell me what's going on there? Like, how does this relate? That is such an interesting uh, contrast
2: to the rest of Europe as well, as I point out in the book. In Germany, yeah, there are violent women, <laughs> but then they're killed. <laughs> And uh, in the stories and in the prints and so on. I mean, it is really homicidal uh, kind of violence against women. Same thing in England. uh, The same kind of violence of men towards women uh, is often the case. Uh, Having scoured (laughs) all the Dutch art I could get my hands on, there is maybe one, maybe two instances that I can even think of where men are shown fighting back. That is, to me, an amazing aspect of Dutch culture, that it's always women doing the violence. It's always women who are the powerful ones. Now, in part, that might be, in a misogynist kind of way, a a way of blaming women, of saying, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's all their fault. (laughs) Look at these dangerous shrews. But I also think it's this sense of, we don't fight back against these powerful women. I mean, I do think it's interesting that women would have just seen instance after instance after instance of women triumphing, women being the ones who win the day, uh, who who are able to overcome men. And in that way, I do think uh, it's in, it, it relates in interesting ways to Hawk's, uh sort of social uh, history uh, of the relationship between uh, spouses in which he comes away saying patriarchy was just constantly questioned in 17th century Dutch culture, that in the the law courts, for example, you have just as many instances of women beating up their husbands as you have the opposite. And uh, so, I mean, that is pretty unusual. You must uh, agree, I think, in terms of Western culture, that, that that many cases of husbands coming forward and saying, my wife beat me up. Yeah, well, and taking <laughs> it to <laughs> the court, right?
1: Like, yeah. you have to, to, to take that public, you have to expect that your neighbors are not just going to you know, do, take part in some Sharivari ritual and make fun of you. Like yeah. that, you, this is, this is a known quantity that, that they're speaking to. Um, right. even, we don't see that as much in other places. We don't. And I do think that because
2: punishment is not really meted out on these women, I think there is uh, a sort of sense of they got away with it. And, the, <laughs> and that, and, and just a realization and recognition of, yes, there are a lot of powerful women in the Dutch Republic. Now, clearly, I'm not saying this is a matriarchal culture. I'm not saying that, you know, women had political power in the same way that men had and that kind of thing. Nevertheless, I do think it is interesting that, uh, that women are always shown triumphing as a kind of reflection then of, the way that at least certain men saw this culture that women really were powerful.
1: (laughs) Right. In this like very in a physical realm, which is meant to be a male realm, you know, as opposed to just this moral one, which is very interesting. And if we only saw it in images, then I might think like it was a critique of the brassy Dutch women. But if you're, you know, it's showing up in the in court records as well. Like this is a legit phenomenon, and uh, church
2: church records as well. Know. You know, church records uh, of uh, of overbearing women, men having to get permission from their wives to go abroad, all kinds of things that suggest, you know. And, and I do love the foreigners' journals in this regard as well because you name it, Uh, men who visit the Netherlands from Italy, from Spain, from England, from France, from Germany, all come to the same (laughs) conclusion that women really rule the roost in marriages, that they really uh, uh, are the ones who make important decisions about the household. And again, because the Dutch Republic was a culture, that really valued the family, the home, uh, that, and saw this, you know, as kind of independent from the state, <laughs> uh, that, that, was, uh, that that realm was, giving, was given such import and that wives were given such uh, um, power really in the relationship between husband and wife everybody notes it. I mean, it wasn't just a stereotype that got repeated over and over again. Each one of these foreigners relates some anecdote about powerful women that they particularly found astonishing in relationship to the way women were in their, in their culture. So.
1: And and you know this is another kind of access of, of of record that allows you to really pinpoint you know like I'm I'm making uh, these images with my hands listeners where I'm kind of triangulating <laughs> like, <laughs> like images like legal records church records and then these travel narratives which are a wonderful source always right and you learn about as much as you learn from about the traveler's home country as you learn but that that you know this idea that Dutch women are just overbearing powerful a little scary. <laughs> it just comes through over and over again. Okay, one of the one of the things that you talk about quite a bit, um, which I'm guessing most of our listeners have never heard of, is the is the battle for the trousers. And I, I just I just first of all I love saying battle for the trousers out loud. I love that that is a thing, and I, I would love it if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about the battle for the trousers.
2: Well, even going back to late medieval times, uh, the distinctiveness of dress between men and women, men wearing pants and women wearing dresses, then became a a sort of gender stereotype so that women trying to wear trousers, take trousers from their husbands, those kinds of things became a, a, a really important signifier of the idea that the woman ruled her husband, that she had power over her husband. And so these scenes of uh, a battling for the trousers are metaphoric in that way and that that was a a signifier that the woman had power in the marriage but again as you were just talking about the physicality of those battles just becomes so funny, so humorous um, and that uh, again even today we just sort of delight in these images uh, of women who are so powerful and again (laughs) the caricaturing of these women their, their, their shrewishness comes out in their faces, you know, uh, uh, of these women who delight really in having their husbands subjugated in this fashion. And there are some interesting ones besides the the, the one you had brought up uh, earlier by Karl von Mander, uh, where when, when a woman has her uh, leg in one side of the pants and the man has his leg in the other side of the pants and then she's grabbing his hair and sort of beating him up you also have these great images of men subjugated into kneeling before their wives and putting the trousers on them as if you know this is a real sign of humiliation then for the husband who has to actually dress his wife uh, in in the trousers in this fashion and then from that you have all kind of uh, all all kinds of other uh, uh, signs of submission he has to kiss her thumb which is another sign of subjugation uh, or or she carries the overhand banner the the, the upper hand banner uh, showing that she has triumphed uh, over him uh, so uh, the the pantoffel using her slipper, the pantoffel, uh, to beat up her husband, a sign that he was a pantoffel held, which is a hand pecked husband. Um, all of these wonderful puns and symbols that they come up with. And again, I think it's so ingenious the amount of iconography that develops just over the bossy wife. You know, I do spend a lot of time on the harpies, but I really want to emphasize how. You know, how How this gets developed in a myriad of ways visually uh, to keep underscoring this stereotype uh, of the bossy Dutch housewife. It wasn't just a passing sort of joke. It was deeply embedded in Dutch culture that the, the hen taster, uh, the man who feels the hen, uh, gropes the hen for eggs, which was considered a female chore, or the spinning husband, the husband that's forced to spin and use women's tools, that, that they just come up with so many ways of exploring this theme of the bossy housewife it says to me, this is pretty much, you know, (laughs) reflective of the Dutch male psyche and of their paranoia over powerful women, which does, I think, bespeak the actuality, the real existence uh, of this in Dutch culture, but also the existence of a true battle of the sexes. And I love that even scholars like uh, Anna Maria von Sherman talk about going to war, going to battle against men, because there really was a battle of the sexes. It's not just a 21st century, you know, uh, kind of impressing our own feminist uh, diatribe on these people. It is this actually existed. This, there was a battle of of the sexes. Um, Men were afraid of powerful women and women felt like men, you know, needed to be shown their place. So, (laughs) so I think there is again, a wider cultural um, uh, kind of evidence that comes into play here to, to suggest that yes, the battle actually existed. And yes, they spent a whole lot of, time on
1: it yeah there's a there is a certain there is a cultural obsession with this um and and hilarious images just you know hilarious images and that we still say you know she wears the pants in the family but we don't have dozens of cartoon drawings of couples literally fighting over pants like you know our man putting pants on his wife as if he were her maid servant um they're just they're everywhere
2: And also the joke books of the time that Rudolf Decker has worked on, um, the majority of them are uh, fighting between spouses (laughs) in this very kind of way. Uh, uh, Numerous, numerous farces of the period deal with this theme. So it's in the visual arts, but it's also in the uh, textual sources of the era. Sure.
1: Um, And then, you know, and so we've got, these like the heroines who are outstanding we have the harpies who are you know this this other uh, very comical representation and you see in some places right and very angry representations i guess in others but then with the housewives you see a much more normative thing and first of all um the art that we're looking at is uh, a little bit more permanent a little bit more uh upscale i guess i want to say you know we're looking at a lot more oils and things like that and what you're reading but here you still see even in the housewives chapter as you talked about earlier, that Dutch women uh, control their homes in a lot of ways, right? So what is it that Dutch women are doing? How important are they really um, in society, like in their homes? What kind of control do they ex- do they exercise there?
2: And that's why I find the anthropological arguments so helpful here is because anthropologists uh, find that societies that give a great deal of emphasis to home and family are the most egalitarian in terms of uh, male and female power. And I think that's actually what happened here. I think that uh, women uh, in this role were seen as essential to Dutch middle-class society. And because they were sort of lifted up in that way, I think it did make them more of an equal partner with their husbands. So while you can have a moralist like Jakob Kotz saying, you know, fathers should rule in the home, Nevertheless, uh, he, you know he's celebrating women. He he talks about the great Anna Maria von Sherman. He talks about Anna Rumers Fischer. He talks about all these great women scholars uh, and and who had very public reputations and so on. So so at the same time that he's saying, yeah, you should be in the home. There's also this great celebration of educated women and and, and women who are important in the society in other ways. So. So I think that this role, we really have to be careful not to see it through 21st century Mm -hmm. eyes. We have to say, uh, you know, how was motherhood, Uh, how was housewife seen in the 17th century? And that's really what I tried to uncover. And as I've already mentioned, Beverweig's text is really helpful in this regard because he talks about how important, how foundational this role is for Dutch society, um, but uh, but uh, you also then have just snippets uh, of evidence uh, like the patrons of Vermeer who did so many images of women in the home, how the wife is the one who leaves this <laughs> great amount of money to Vermeer in, uh, in her will, uh, such that it suggests, uh, I mean, we just have a bare suggestion here, but nevertheless, it is a sense that she may well have been the one wanting those paintings from Vermeer and that she wanted these images of women. And it was really, I think, a celebration of women so that you could look at an image of somebody who was like you, who makes lace like you, who spins like you, who, uh, who rules the, 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 over the servants like you do, who organizes the home like you do. So it shows these women as extremely competent, uh, women who could do all things, <laughs> uh, women who contributed to the economy, uh, but who also raised good, you know, uh, virtuous children um, and ran uh, a well-organized uh, household and so on. Uh, so showing them as incredibly capable women. I, I don't know if you've ever been to, <laughs> to places like Bruges where you still can see lace makers out working, it's an incredible process. I mean, they hardly are even paying attention to what they are doing, and yet they work with such uh, uh, quickness, such speed, uh, that you're just sort of amazed standing there watching it. So I think that when we look at an image of a lacemaker, we have to say, that's as much about, wow, look at the skill of this woman (laughs) as it is about She's fulfilling, you know, female roles. And I do think it's really important <laughs> that at the outset of this plethora of images that come forth of women in the home, it's a woman who really changes the narrative. It's a woman, a Rochman, who does this series of, of prints of women in the home doing a variety of tasks, sewing, baking can- pancakes, spinning. Uh, scrubbing metalware, uh, that totally changes the narrative about women. So during the first half of the century, you have all of these images of shrewish harpies and showing women in a very caricatured negative kind of manner. But then she totally changes that. For example, pancake bakers, if you even think of Rembrandt or Van der Velde, always the pancake baker was this Shrewish, harpyish old woman <laughs> uh, who was tempting fat, greedy children with her pancakes because pancakes had been a Lenten prohibition. And so they always had connotations of evil. Now she shows this pancake baker. From the back, we don't even see her face. Again, she's a sort of middle-aged, largish woman here, um, and you have to really examine it to realize she is making pancakes. So she takes this stereotype and totally turns it on a, on its head to this positive view of women cooking at the hearth. And she shows her from the back. In other words, how shocking is that? Think of any art history from the Renaissance period uh, earlier than this. How often do you see the main character shown from the back? All right. For me, that is an indication she wanted the woman to be able to say, that's me. I'm sitting here in front of the hearth. I'm like her cooking the pancakes. She's not displaying what she's doing in a moralizing way to say, women, you should stay at home and bake pancakes. And and that wouldn't even make sense because it had this negative stereotype. So as a moral of virtue, it certainly doesn't fit, even though that's what certain Dutch art historians have said about this image. Instead, it's this sense of, this is you. This is you cooking pancakes in the house. Um, and it is this sense, again, of equal and like the Gorzelda of politics talks about in the 19th century where you're given a place so that women could so relate to these images as women like themselves and again they're shown as heroic women they're strong they're they're powerful they're forceful they're doing you know difficult ta- tasks here and she really, and same thing with the woman scouring. It had always been this sort of erotic subject matter of a, of a young woman scouring metalware, tempting some old man who's voyeuristically looking at, at her, you know, because pots with open mouths had very suggestive kinds of, of meanings as they're scrubbing these pots. And she, again, totally changes that. No coy, inviting glance out toward the viewer here. No seductive, low décolletage. Instead, she's turned her back towards us. Her sleeves are rolled up. She's got these muscular arms that would have been necessary in the scrubbing of of all these metal implements. So she totally changes uh, the narrative. And as I tried to show, lots of men are influenced by her. De Dohok, even Vermeer, uh, I think, has been influenced by her. And uh, so that this print, these prints, again, that were readily accessible, I think became really the model for domestic imagery after that. And she's never been given credit for that. And I think that it makes such a difference that it was a woman empathetic to women's lives that made this series and really transformed uh, Dutch domestic
1: imagery that is that's great. I'm glad that you're redeeming this woman. uh <laughs> showing what she's doing. And this feels like a good place, you know, to pull it together. So, I've taken a lot of your time and we've we've gotten to the, the what we need to talk about. So, uh let's wrap it up. Just uh so I've just one more question. Uh what are you doing now? What's next? Well, assuming so, you ever get over here again. I guess. Yes, there's a
2: partnership between the publisher, Lund Humphreys and uh, the Getty, uh, that have come together to uh, to bring forth a series on women artists, which I think is so exciting. Uh, I, I'm just uh, I'm just excited to read all the volumes that come out of this collaboration. Uh, so I was asked to do a volume on Joanna Kirsten, uh who I talk about in the chapter on heroines. She's this incredible woman. Um, and, and in the sort of turn of the 17th century into the 18th century. And she's talked about in Brocken's biography, he's a biographer of artists, uh, and he gives her 11 pages of elaboration on this incredible woman uh, who sold an embroidery to the emperor for you know, 4,000 guilders, which is three times what Rembrandt was paid for the night watch, essentially, she had had truly an international reputation, which Rembrandt always wanted and never really achieved, but she truly received patronage from all over Europe and was most famed for her paper cutting. Uh, They are incredible uh, images uh, that are essentially white cut paper, uh, overlaid on a dark background or sometimes they were placed in glass so you could see through them and you have to cut out all the details essentially um, uh, with scissors or with a knife. Uh, she does this incredible series of fa- famous men, the, the William the Third portrait that she does uh, of King William the Third is one of the, the most amazing images I've ever seen in the whole history of art. Um, so she's able to capture Textural effects and details that are just phenomenal uh, in the in the realm of paper cutting. And um, her her house in Amsterdam called the Block. Uh, she married late in life uh, to a merchant whose name was Block became a museum. Uh, Peter the Great goes and visits it from, from Russia. Um, she, she just becomes a kind of phenomena. So I'm really excited to write this volume uh, on her and her life, uh, just a, a fascinating character who was sort of lost to us for a time. And I hope to revive the importance of her contribution in this volume.
1: Wonderful. I'm so excited to read that. When <laughs> so uh, Wonderful. Well, I hope you get over here soon. I hope like at least this works out. Uh, thank you so much again for your time. And um, I wish you the best. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye.